Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks for Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand. I'd like to welcome you to a program where we believe it's important to hear from uh, Theodore Roosevelt in the words that he wrote and spoke over a century ago, hence the title Teddy Talks. We're familiar with some of the shorter phrases and quotations associated with Theodore Roosevelt. I am uh, greatly appreciative at these times and, and throughout the last 15 years that I've been performing as Theodore Roosevelt, grateful for Short phrases that instill confidence like, do what you can, with what you can, where you are. I believe you can, and you're halfway there. Keep your eyes on the stars and your feet planted firmly on the ground. His uh, phrases, speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. Uh, uh, the muckraking press, the lunatic fringe, these important phrases have their roots and uh, either Theodore Roosevelt's coinage or in uh, phrases, statements that he made. We will, on this program, be able to hear more at length from Theodore Roosevelt. And that's where I think the heart and soul of this program lies. Uh, we're going to get into the speeches, into the longer letters and uh, official papers of Theodore Roosevelt, that we might see how that man's mind worked, at least how it worked with regards to his presentation of thought uh, through uh, the written and spoken word, hence Teddy Talks. And in that regard, I thank you all so much for being here, and I thank my good friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, and specifically Justin Fisk and Dylan Olson, who have figured out all the uh, gizmos and what you call it that are able to make this program available on YouTube and Spotify. Uh, that You uh, might have friends interested in the program, but also uh, perhaps not familiar with uh, the Facebook methodologies, you might uh, invite them to listen to the programs, find them by searching Teddy Talks on YouTube or Spotify. I do want to encourage a word to spread that on Thursday, uh, April uh, 23rd, we're going to have an extremely uh, special program, Citizenship in a Republic. That's the title of the speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave on that date, April 23rd in Paris, France, at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris. It's a small portion of that speech that has become famous and, and remains important today. 
It's uh, known as the man in the arena, uh, beginning with the phrase, it is not the critic who counts. On Thursday's program, I'll begin the program with my best rendition I can possibly muster of that man in the arena. But then I'd invite you to listen along to what will be a rather longer program on Thursday, the full speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave on that date. A speech that for me has portions of it which are actually more inspiring and, and more uh, a prompting of that sort of response that I think Theodore Roosevelt was looking for in his hearers or in his readers. The speech, of course, was reproduced in writing in the United States and disseminated, disseminated significantly in France, uh, uh, both uh, English and uh, French translations, uh, thousands sent to French schools and school children. The, uh, the speech uh, for me should be done in its entirety. And I began thinking as the import of this for me uh, was uh, coming about this week, this may be the first time in a long, long time that the uh, speech, Citizenship in a Republic, has actually been done in a piece. I can't think of another time during my studies when I've come across an audio file or a, a clipping of someone presenting the speech. So uh, if you would like to record that speech and uh, know again uh, how the gizmos and whatchamacallits uh, are able to do so, I would say feel free. The uh, speech itself, like uh, just about everything that Theodore Roosevelt uh, wrote at the time is in the public domain now, uh, and uh, everything that I do is an open source. I hope you'll share it with family and friends. Today, a shorter program, uh, hence uh, my taking a little time to promote the program on Thursday, April 23rd, followed quickly by a more concise program, two short speeches on Friday, April 24th. The first comes from the great tour that Theodore Roosevelt uh, took across the Western states as president in 1903, coming here to Medora in April of that month, and, and then uh, going on with his friend John Burroughs and Superintendent Pitcher. Uh, he went to Yellowstone and enjoyed uh, observing the wildlife there. And uh, it was uh, days, uh, weeks, uh, something on the order of 10 or 12 days, that uh, Theodore Roosevelt was gone in Yellowstone and then came out and at Gardner, Montana, laid the cornerstone and had dedicatory remarks at what would now be known as Roosevelt Arch in Gardner, Montana. So uh, just as the nation waited to hear from Theodore Roosevelt uh, as he emerged from Yellowstone, uh, I hope that you'll uh, uh, wait and then attend on Friday to hear his speech given in Gardner, Montana, April 24th, 1903, and then followed by uh, statements uh, that he gave in the year of... Uh, 19, uh, oh, oh, April 24th, 1906. Uh, this is in Arlington, or I'm sorry, in uh, Annapolis, Maryland at the Naval Academy. Uh, these are the remarks made by President Theodore Roosevelt uh, on the reinternment of John Paul Jones at the Naval Academy. That chapel, by the way, a beautiful chapel, uh, was uh, built in 1903 during the Roosevelt administration. My, I have rambled and prattled on this morning, haven't I? Today in history, in, in history of uh, our country, the world, uh, and sometimes things uh, extremely uh, uh, interestingly connected to Theodore Roosevelt, but uh, April 21st, 1836. Hello to our friends in Texas. It was on this date uh, during the Texas Revolution that the Battle of San Jacinto was held and uh, the Republic of Texas uh, under uh, Sam Houston defeated the Mexican forces under Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. 
and uh, San Jacinto Day uh, being celebrated in uh, in Texas today, and a great monument, uh, San Jacinto. Uh, uh, if you visit uh, East Texas, visit the uh, memorial at San Jacinto. Uh, the following day, it was discovered that uh, Santa Ana himself had been captured, uh, attempted to conceal himself in uh, uh, an enlisted man's uniform rather than his officer's uniform, but uh, uh, was uh, spotted and uh, hence uh, in his own uh, personal documents of surrender, surrendering Texas to the Texans. April 23rd, 21st, 1838, born on this date in Dunbar, Scotland, John Muir, uh, a Scottish-American environmentalist and author, a friend and camping companion, of Theodore Roosevelt, specifically on that trip of 1903, camping and tramping about Yosemite. Uh, here in the world of reenactment and acting, a no finer John Muir can be found than my friend Lee Stetson, performing as John Muir for decades now uh, at Yosemite, and my uh, delight on occasion to perform with Lee Stetson in his wonderful two-man play, The Tramp and the Rough Rider, uh, something we've done uh, here on stage in uh, in Medora and hope to do again. Uh, John Muir uh, would grow up in Wisconsin, uh, the family having uh, emigrated when he was a young boy, and a very hard childhood uh, for John Muir showed himself extremely bright, inventing, uh, working in a local factory, uh, uh, accidentally blinded himself temporarily in one eye, and Upon uh, that eyesight being restored, John Muir went out on a great walkabout down through Florida and uh, eventually out to uh, California. And then uh, that uh, that founder of the Sierra Club uh, became the great sage of the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, from him, we derive uh, Sequoia National Park, uh, the credit for Yosemite National Park being made a national park in 1890. Uh, the credit goes to uh, John Muir, uh, more properly thought of as a father of the national parks. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt certainly ran the ball further down the field from the point of the president. But John Muir uh, spread uh, uh, wonderfully the idea of uh, uh, having greater, uh, uh, more numerous, and, and a greater expanse of national parks. April 21st, 1898, the United States Navy begins a, begins a blockade of Cuba. And when the United States Congress issues a declaration of war on April 25th, it declared that a state of war had existed from this date, April 21st, 1898. April 21st, 1905, continuing the thesis that uh, young Americans who grew up in the aughts, in the teens, even the early 20s, I think, could not help but be stamped by some of the influence and legacy of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, uh, in my own lifetime, we spoke of those who grew up during the Depression and saw us through the World War, we call them America's greatest generation. Uh, but there was also a, a sense about the ethic, uh, the uh, patriotism, uh, the uh, life of uh, duty and service that that generation lived, uh, sort of a, a duty and example that Theodore Roosevelt both preached and lived himself. And so on this date uh, in 1905 was born Pat Brown, American lawyer and politician. I believe it's uh, Edward Patrick Brown, known as Pat Brown. The 32nd governor of California, uh, born this date, uh, April 21st, 1905. Uh, he's uh, fascinating in the history of California and in our national politics. Uh, of course, defeated former Vice President Richard Nixon uh, for the governorship of California, served two terms, and then was defeated uh, for a third term by the uh, 
future president of the United States and president of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, father to uh, Governor Jerry Brown, uh, who I think has the distinction of having been the youngest and the oldest governor of uh, California. And also Kathleen Brown, uh, Governor Jerry's sister served, I believe, as Secretary of State uh, or Treasurer of California. Oh, and uh, getting closer to the heart of Theodore Roosevelt, April 21st, 1910, the death in Connecticut of Samuel Langhorne Clemens. Pen name, Mark Twain. Theodore Roosevelt loved the writings of Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt uh, in the same circles, uh, in, in a way, on the front pages uh, of the newspapers of the United States and on the lecture and speaking circuit, perhaps uh, in that time, the turn of the century, the two most popular Americans in the country and in Europe, Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt, but a difficult relationship. Mark Twain, uh, Samuel Clemens, served as president of the Anti-Imperialist League, and Theodore Roosevelt was considered by Twain and others the imperialist-in-chief uh, in his role as president. I have it that uh, Mark Twain said of Theodore Roosevelt, I love the man, I hate the politician. When Samuel Clemens' uh, unabridged, extensive uh, diary uh, was published in recent years, uh, there's a great deal in his diary and also in his correspondence that was very derisive of the American president, uh, uh, often phrasing things in the way of uh, characterizing uh, Theodore Roosevelt as a self-promoting buffoon. And uh, uh, again, uh, we'll give some equal time to Theodore Roosevelt's critics and when appropriate, uh, we'll uh, uh, perhaps read from some of the uh, some of the works of the Anti-Imperialist League and Samuel Clemens in that regard. April 21st, uh, 1948, certainly long after Theodore Roosevelt's death in 1919, but also uh, a death date, April 21st, 1948, of Aldo Leopold, uh, American uh, ecologist and forester. And while we remember his Sand County Almanac and his work associated with the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, remember that Aldo Leopold, one of the fathers of the concept of uh, the wilderness areas, Aldo Leopold was a United States uh, Forest Service ranger in the employ of the United States Forest Service, uh, graduating from uh, the uh, Pinchot-dominated uh, uh, Yale School of Forestry in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, uh, that uh, son of Iowa, Aldo Leopold, would find his first duty posts in the Southwest, in New Mexico and Arizona territories, and uh, would leave quite a legacy, sometimes uh, associated in its conservation ethic with President Theodore Roosevelt. April 21st, 1917, the United States has gone to war and Theodore Roosevelt wants to go to war too. Uh, he is at Sagamore Hill, his home in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And on this date uh, has remarks uh, these are from an address delivered before a delegation of New York businessmen in behalf of the Third Liberty Loan. The first thing that I wish to do is, as an American, heartily to thank you men and women who have done and are doing the actual work of floating the Liberty Bonds. It is a vitally important work and it is as laborious and exhausting as it is important. I wish that the worthy people who think that the governmental processes 
even so far as they affect the public, go on without effort, might have a little of the experience you have had in handling this work that you have been on, and they would learn the necessity of coordinated effort. There are several hundred of you men, all above or below the military age, except, as I have been informed, three who have been exempted because of dependent families, and one man who has been doing his best to get into the army, but has been rejected for physical reasons. I dwell upon that fact because, as you know, I feel that the prime duty of the fighting man who can get to the front is to try to get to the front. The thing that primarily counts in this war is the strength of the fighting man. The primary work is the work of the men at the front, but the men at the front cannot do that work unless they have the weapons, the instrumentalities with which to do it. It is only you and those like you who can furnish the means to secure those instrumentalities. And therefore, the work of you and of those like you has been second in importance only to the work of the men at the front. Without it, the work of the men at the front could not go on. You men and women have devoted every energy to it, have sacrificed all your private interests, and have acted in the broadest and fullest spirit of patriotism. Alone does not float itself. No governmental work does itself. Somebody has to do it. You and your associates in the other districts of the country have assumed this burden of disinterested service to the country. I appeal to our people to back you to the fullest limit. This is the people's war. It is America's war. It is a war for our children and for the welfare of our children's children. If we do not win now, fighting abroad beside our allies, then sooner or later our sons or our grandsons will have to fight here at home without allies. We are fighting in our own quarrel. The man who does not think that it was America's duty to fight for her own sake in view of the infamous conduct of Germany towards us stands on a level with a man who wouldn't think it necessary to fight in a private quarrel because his wife's face was slapped. We have a special and intolerable grievance against Germany, and we are warranted in fighting the war because of that special injury of our own. Warranted is not a strong enough word. We were required to go to war. If we were ever hereafter individually to hold up our heads as citizens of a free nation. But in addition to these special grievances, that we as citizens of the United States had against Germany, we also are fighting in the quarrel of civilization against barbarism, of liberty against tyranny. Germany has become a menace to the whole world. She is the most dangerous enemy of liberty now existing. She has shown herself utterly ruthless, treacherous, and brutal. When I use those words, I use them with scientific precision. The American who is not now heart and soul against her and heart and soul in favor of fighting this war through to a victorious conclusion to the peace of overwhelming victory is a traitor to this country and a traitor to mankind. He is unfit to live in America. He is unfit to be a free man for his soul is the soul of a slave. And if that American has associated himself with other Americans, in order to work against the interests of America 
as has been done in the case of the German-American alliance, then I hope with all my heart that Congress and the state legislatures will act, will dissolve the German-American alliance, and if there is a method of getting at the leaders of it, will get at them in any way that is necessary. No man can serve two masters in this country at this time. There can be no such thing as a 50-50 allegiance here. If the man is not an American and nothing else, he should be sent out of this country. If he plays the part of sedition in this country, he should be shot. But if he is just neutral, then let him get out to some other neutral country. Don't let him be neutral here any longer. And incidentally, I wish to say that this is my view of the conscientious objector too. Now and then I receive protests from some conscientious objector who says that he expects me to respect his conscience. I will, but he has got to respect mine too. In the first place, if his conscience makes him act either a fool or a traitor, then I should advise him to take it out and look at it and see if it is in good working order. In the next place, I would try to find out what he is conscientious about. He may be conscientious about killing somebody else. He may be conscientious about keeping his own carcass safe from injury. Now, if he merely objects to killing someone else, then send him to the front with a spade to dig trenches in the danger zone, or else put him on a minesweeper. Do you know about minesweepers? They go about and collect mines. If they don't collect them just right, they go up. If you put a conscientious objector on a minesweeper, he is not in danger of killing anyone else. But I cannot guarantee his own personal safety. Now, if he will do that work, all right. I have got nothing to say. Treat him all right. But if he won't do that work, if he says that his conscience forbids him to do any of the necessary work of national self-defense, then I would answer that my conscience would forbid me to let him vote in a country which can only exist at all because its sons are willing to fight for it. So it is our business to stand by the men at the front. We can stand by them effectively only through action, such as you here and your associates and those like you in other districts are taking and have taken. We cannot fight this war without vast numbers of soldiers, ships, guns, and airplanes, and vast quantities of food and munitions. For all of this, we must pay money. As the war is the war of all of us, so each of us, according to his or her ability, should bear some part of the burden. I want to etch that in. If there is an American in this country who at this time is not bearing some part of the common burden, then he is not fit to be in the country at all. No man nowadays should be able to feel that he has a right to a night's sleep at the end of the day, unless during the day he has done something for the common cause, the cause of all of us. Each of us should gladly and cheerfully sacrifice everything necessary in order to win this war. The men at the front, the men whose high privilege it is to be at the front, stand ready to sacrifice life and limb and health for our dear land. We who are not given that high privilege, we who cannot go to the front, must at least back them to the limit with the work of head and of hand, with our dollar and our self-sacrifice, our courage and endurance, our thrift and our intelligence, 
our labor, and our money. Do the thing that is next. That is always the important point to make. Don't resolve in a glow of virtue how good you are going to be next year. Do it now. Do the thing that is next. And at this moment, the thing that is next for us here, and for millions like us elsewhere in the land, the thing that is next is to raise the money for the Liberty Loan. I have said before, this is the people's war. Let us make the people themselves the owners of the debt incurred for the sake of the people. Every man, big or little, has a chance to subscribe. Let every wage earner and every farmer subscribe what he can. He will thereby serve the country, and he will thereby serve himself and his family, for he will strengthen his own economic position. I would like to drive that point home. Now, there are some forms of activity where no one can promise any money return for what is done. Of course, that is especially the case with men who go to the front. There can be no money reward in any way adequate for what they do. Again, it is true of such work as the work of the Red Cross, of the YMCA, of the Knights of Columbus, or all kindred organizations. If you put your money into them, you have put it in, making the sacrifice gladly and not expecting anything back. But in the case of the Liberty Loan, I am asking you to help the nation and help yourselves at the same time. The greatest good that can come to the individual himself is to put his money in the Liberty Loan. That is the way he can best help the nation at this time. He will help it as an incident to helping himself. The older among you will remember listening in time past now and now and then to frothy orators who in the name of the people denounced the bondholders. You have heard them say, stand up for the people against the bondholders. Fine. Now let us stand up for the people against the bondholders by making the people the bondholders. Let us make the people and the bondholders interchangeable terms. And after these loans have been floated, let it be remembered that no human being without hypocrisy can denounce the bondholders without denouncing the people. For the chance is open to every man to become one of the bondholders. And when I say to every man, I mean to every man. The conditions are such that anybody with a little self-denial and a little thrift can become to a certain extent a holder of the bonds of the United States. And the effort of you men and those like you elsewhere has consistently been to make it especially easy for the men and women of small means to subscribe to the loans. And the security is the best in the world, for it will be good as long as this nation endures. And if this nation breaks, we shall all of us be broken. Nothing will make any difference to any of us. Now, friends, I wish I could adequately express to you my sense of appreciation of the work that you and those like you are doing. The financial standing of this country depends primarily now upon the work of just such organizations as your organization here. And the welfare of our soldiers, the weight of our part in the war, depends upon your success. It depends upon other things in addition. We, of course, must see that there is the highest grade of efficiency reached by our public servants in handling the funds thus provided. But the funds have to be provided before they are handled. That ought to be accepted as an axiomatic truth. So you men and women here, and the men and women like you engaged in similar tasks elsewhere through the country, 
are standing by our soldiers in the trenches at the front. I thank you as an American, wish you well, and I am mighty glad to see you. The duty of an American from an address delivered before a delegation of New York businessmen in behalf of the third Liberty loan at Oyster Bay, Long Island, April 1917. Boy, those are calls to duty to help those at the front uh, to do what is next in helping that effort. I'm sure each and every one of you is uh, considerate of and to the degree that uh, our isolation provides doing what you can. My thanks to John Stern and the Stern family of Strauss Clothiers uh, in the east of North Dakota, who, who like many of you and your friends are making uh, face masks, uh, not uh, the clinical kind to be worn by the doctors and nurses and those giving the, uh, the tests for the virus, but instead to be worn by the citizens as they go about uh, their lives as we uh, attempt to uh, get out and help support uh, the economy and, and interact with one another and that sort of thing. I've got a uh, another uh, newspaper story from the next day in the New York Times, April 22nd, 1917. Uh, the uh, the printing was such, uh, the archive file such, that uh, I'm unable to uh, get it to the margins. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, For some of my old Suwannee friends, the horrifying title, Forbid distilling grain, says Colonel. And uh, of course, now we're so glad that so many of our distillers uh, have uh, uh, modified their work uh, to uh, make sanitizer and that sort of thing. So even the distillers are in the vanguard of providing uh, uh, patriotic services at this time of duty and doing what's next. But uh, I've called up on the screen now, so forbid me uh, for reading on the screen. But uh, uh, from the New York Times of April 22nd, referring back to another a comment that Theodore Roosevelt made, and these were to the, uh, uh, these were made to the, um, ah, these were these were made to a, a gathering of farmers at the fairgrounds in Mineola, Long Island, New York, not all that far from Oyster Bay, and where there would be an airfield uh, uh, on which uh, Quentin Roosevelt would get some of his early training in the United States Army Air Service, later the United States Army. Air Corps. So thank you for bearing with me. Uh, from the New York Times, with a great deal of quotation from Theodore Roosevelt. Forbid distilling grain, says Colonel. Calls for commandeering labor if necessary to assure food supply. Defends his army plan. Hopes to bridge gap, he declares, until universal service takes effect. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt came out yesterday strongly in favor of a law prohibiting the use of grain in the manufacture of liquor during wartime. He told the members of the Long Island Farmers Club and the Long Island Food Reserve Battalion at a meeting held on the Mineola Long Island Fairgrounds that citizens must begin at once to eliminate extravagance and waste and accustom themselves to economy. When there is a shortage of food, he said, I feel personally that we should see that grain is not diverted from food into intoxicants. In this war, many nations in Europe have exercised rigid control over the grain production. It would be a fine idea for us to follow their lead. Every man can reduce the number of things he has been doing that do not count toward the vital efficiency of the country. We can avoid doing anything that is needless. For example, this would be a good time to cut down joy rides and save gasoline. Colonel Roosevelt urged the farmers to increase their acreage 
so that the United States might have an abundance of food to send to the Allies as well as to provide for home needs. He favored limiting the planting of flowers and said that the railroad should cooperate with the farmers so that those things which were necessary and did not savor of luxury could be given the right of way. Great Meade's Outside Army Colonel Roosevelt devoted a considerable part of his speech to explaining his views on personal and universal service. I believe in universal service, but that does not necessarily mean universal service in the army. I believe that every man, woman, and child in the country is at war, when the country is at war, should have his or her abilities utilized in the matter most essential. Therefore, if there should come a short of a labor in connection with the crops, the government could mobilize labor and use it in increasing the food production. The farmers ought to remember for the next few months that their work in tilling the soil and producing crops is just as important as any army work. If necessary, the authorities should commandeer labor in order to assure our allies and ourselves plenty of food. I want to see universal service adopted, not as a temporary policy, but as a permanent one. I want to see the young men between the ages of 18 and 19 have from six months to a year's training in the field under conditions of ordinary army life. I want to see Mrs. Vanderbilt's son and Mrs. Astor's son with Pat and Jim of Telegraph Hill, sleeping under the same dog tent and eating the same food. I want to see the officers selected from among them on the strict basis of merit without regard to anything else. Then we will have a democratic system. This is W.K. Vanderbilt Jr. who occupied a seat on the platform with other members of the North Shore and South Side colonies led in the applause which greeted this part of the Colonel's remarks. Continuing, Colonel Roosevelt said it would take at least two years to get such a system of universal service started successfully. In the interim, he argued those who, like himself, were exempt under this system should be allowed to take the flag to the firing line at the earliest possible moment. I'll go if they let me go. Ralph Peters, president of the Long Island Railroad, was speaking when Colonel Roosevelt entered the hall. When the applause which greeted the distinguished guest had subsided, Mr. Peters turned to him and asked, Colonel, are you going to France, or will you remain here and help us raise the crops on Long Island? By George, I'll go to France if they let me, was the Colonel's quick reply. Mr. Peters made a plea to the farmers to realize the importance of their work and to plant every inch of available land. Supreme Court Justice Townsend Scudder recommended putting the schoolboys of Long Island on the farms during vacation. Paul D. Kravitz endorsed this idea and said the principal problem at present was to arouse people to a realization that success in the war depended upon every man doing his bit. At the close of the meeting, a committee was appointed to raise $50,000 to assist in the cultivation of extra acreage throughout Long Island. W.K. Vanderbilt presented three tractors to the food battalion and promised to purchase four more. Colonel Roosevelt also expressed some of his views of war problems in an interview which he gave out. We come to the top of the page. An interview he gave out of, uh, upon the country to stand behind the president regardless of partisanship 
and explained his reason for asking to raise a division of volunteers for service in France, answering those who had used his request as an argument against the administration's bill for universal military service. I do not want to be put in the position of saying to my fellow countrymen, go to war. I want to be in the position of saying, come to the war, I am going with you. I wish we already had universal military training in this country, but we are as Great Britain was when the war broke out. She had disregarded Lord Roberts' advice to have universal military service. She was wrong in doing that. But it would have been a capital mistake if, when the war broke out, she had declined to send a small military expedition at once to Belgium and had refused to accept volunteers from Canada and Australia on the plea that she then intended to do nothing except in accordance with the theory of obligatory military service. What she ought to have done was to send her expeditionary army exactly as she did, to use the volunteers exactly as she did, and instantly to introduce the system of obligatory service also. This is precisely what we should do. I am utterly against any hymn of hate in this country as against any nationality. Let us have our hymn of hate against that system of organized tyranny which has made Germany a menace to the world. We are fighting in the spirit of Andreas Hofer and those Germans who led the fight against the tyranny of Napoleonic France when we now rally the free peoples for, of the world against tyrannous militarism which would destroy all freedom. Once we have destroyed that tyranny, we shall hail the Germans as our brothers. We shall eagerly hope to admit them to the fellowship of free peoples. My goodness, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and uh, speaking uh, directly to the American people, his neighbors in, in Long Island, both at Oyster Bay and in Mineola, on this date, April 21st, 1917. And I hope that uh, you found these words rallying the nation to respond to the threat at hand uh, to be timely, uh, there's a bit in here that, uh, for me, uh, has uh, given me a bit of wind in my sails for the, the simple uh, work that I have to do ahead, uh, my contribution to trying to uh, help the country, part of which is to bring to life at your request, and I think by providence, uh, that occurring here in these 26 days with the 26th president in April, that on April uh, 24th, uh, I'm sorry, April 23rd, Thursday, April 23rd, we will uh, give the entire speech, uh, Citizenship in a Republic, given April uh, 23rd, 1910 in Paris, France, from which we get the man in the arena. So I'll be uh, back to promote those uh, uh, performances later in the week. Thanks for being here with me on Teddy Talks. Tomorrow, an adventure in the Badlands. Uh, from two pens, that of Theodore Roosevelt, and that of my favorite Badlands historian, Rolf Sletten, author of Roosevelt's Ranches. Join us here tomorrow, Wednesday, April uh, 22nd, on Teddy Talk.